Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome. Welcome to class number, what is it, nine? Class number nine on the Return of the Shadow. Class number nine of who knows how many as I continue to get farther and further behind with fewer and fewer apologies as the weeks go on. Uh, I'm excited. Today we are coming to the end of phase one. We are going to uh, uh, look at the queries and alterations chapter primarily today. Um, which is that moment, that fun moment when Tolkien pauses and uh, 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 sort of rethinks everything. Uh, so that's going to be fun. Um, but anyway, uh, so yeah, so we're going to be, uh, we're going to be, we're going to be. I, I really, I have no aspirations of uh, going beyond that chapter today. So we'll definitely plan to start the second phase next week. Which means the only question that remains is whether I can actually finish the first phase tonight or not. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how we're doing. So okay, one quick announcement uh, before uh, we go to the. Um, oh, sorry, I'm not doing one of my other things here. Got so many darn windows up. I lost my notes. Where'd they go? There they are. All right. Okay. Excellent. Found my notes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You've got two screens, and I have so many windows open that I'm, uh, you know, uh, losing myself. Okay, there we are, yes. Anyway, as I was saying, quick announcement. Tomorrow evening at 5.30 p.m., uh, Dr. Verlin Flieger is doing a seminar session, an open free seminar session on the lay of Aotrue and Etrune. Um This is possibly Tolkien's least known work. I, I can't think of any work by Tolkien that fewer people know well than The Lay of Eotrue and Etrune. Um, uh, an edition of that, of course, was very recently released, edited by Dr. Flieger, and she is going to be talking about it um, if you've never even heard of it, if you don't even know what we're talking about, definitely attend. Dr. Flieger is, uh, as she's the one who did the edition uh, for the Tolkien Estate. Um, so uh, she uh, is just a, the perfect guide and a wonderful teacher. So I hope that you will take advantage of the opportunity to hear Dr. Flieger talk about Eotru uh, and Etrun. And that will be at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time uh, tomorrow evening, so, so Thursday. 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. hope you'll be able to make that. If you want the link to that, it's going to be in a NetMoot session like this. Just go to the uh, the Signum University webpage, scroll down a little bit, and the event page is right there. Um, so, uh, very good. Okay. Excellent. Let's, uh, let's jump quickly back into The Return of the Shadow. So, last time... Uh, I ended by looking at sort of how in this new world, right, now that that door has cracked open between the Silmarillion material and the Lord of the Rings material, uh, what happens there, right? And I want to uh, I want to very briefly backtrack a little bit. Um, I'm going to I'm going to reread a couple of the slides that I did at the very, very end of class last time. I, we already talked about a bunch of this stuff, so I'm not going to spend much time on it. But as I was going to there was one slide I didn't get to last time. Uh, and uh, I was going to start with that one, but I'm like, mm, I don't want to start in the middle. I want to go back a little bit. So we're just going to go back a tiny bit, uh, and um, we're going to we're going to look at the the sort of big picture in a sense of this stuff. So going back to the slide that I called "Gathering Round the Tail Fire," how this begins to this is of course part of the sketchy notes for when we get to Rivendell. Uh, and what's going to go on at Rivendell? And he had suggested that uh, you know we're going to get a story of um, of Gilgalad. Um, 
So here's what uh, Tolkien writes. The lands and islands in the northwest of the great lands of the old world were called long ago Beleriand. Here the elves of the west had dwelt for a long while, until, during the wars with the power of darkness, in which the power was defeated, but the land destroyed, Sauron alone of his chief servants escaped. But still, after the elves had mostly departed, changed to, although most of the elves returned, again into the west, there were many elves and elf friends that dwelt, still in after days, in that region. And thither came many of the great men of old, out of the far west island, which was called by the elves Numenor, but by some Avalon. Changed to, out of the land of westerness, that they called Numenor, for Sauron had destroyed their island. Changed to, land, and they were exiles and hated him. Sauron, presumably. There was a king in Beleriand of Numenorean race, and he was called Elendil, that is, Elf Friend, and he made an alliance with the elf king of those lands, whose name is Gilgalad, Starlight, a descendant of Feanor the Renowned. I remember well their counsel, for it reminded me of the great days of the ancient war. So many fair princes and captains were there, yet not so many or so fair as once had been. Notice, and now, so again, I just just a very brief... Uh, 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 sort of recollection here. Remember how we were talking last time how the transformation of the Gilgalad reference, right? Remember we got that one reference to, Gil- to Gilgalad and Velandil uh, when they were in the, the the Lone Lands there, right near Weathertop there in the Weather Hills. And uh, uh, and, and we were looking at how that first reference to Gilgalad and Velandil uh, just looked like recycling, right? And we were comparing and contrasting last time that Gilgalad reference to the later Gilgalad Gilgalad references, that is, after the turning point, right? After the intervention of Baron and Luthien at Weathertop. Um, and how radically different this sounds. And I think, I, I hope that we can all agree that this sounds very different from that, right? Not only have we shifted the name back to Elendil, Elf Friend, to fit back in the Fall of Numenor story, but this is straight out of the Fall of Numenor, right? Okay, not exactly straight out of, but this is, this is, this is a revision of what was in the Fall of Numenor. In fact, you know, some of the, some of the wording is the same. Like, basically, now we have, we see him just importing wholesale, as we already saw him beginning to do, right, with Baron and Luthien. We're just going to bring those stories fully formed, even in the form in which they were told. You know, one of the, um, one of the things that, that kind of came up a little bit, um, in the Lost Road, when we were talking about the Lost Road, is, why didn't he finish the Fall of Numenor stuff? Like, we, we don't, you know, we get the Akalabith eventually, but, uh, you know, why didn't he, like, do more with the Fall of Numenor stuff? And one of the reasons, I think, is that it ends up here, right? Because of its incorporation. Like, once it's incorporated into the Lord of the Rings, it becomes part of this story, and it no longer needs... It, it ceases to be now what it originally was, or looked to be, or looked to be becoming, which is the sequel uh, to the Silmarillion material, right? The, 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 the sequel to the story of the elves, in their wars with with uh, with Morgoth, the Numenorians and their issues with Sauron were the sequel, right? And this was the sort of the final stage of that, uh, the you know the uh, the the last alliance between elves and men. So we we so so okay. So now we've gone from recycling to wholesale retellings of the uh, the earlier material. Right, and yes, Mariel, the ancient war there uh, is a reference to the to the War of Wrath. That's right. Um, uh, yeah, uh, 
it's I don't want to get into that too much, Marielle, like exactly what the War of Wrath was and everything. Because she's she's sort of querying the way it's alluded to here. Um, the, where was it? Uh, um, the wars with the power of darkness, in which the power was defeated, but the land destroyed. Um, it was more participatory in the earlier version. I just, we, we talked about this a bunch in the Lost Road, and I, I don't want to. I don't want to backtrack too much. Um, but yeah, it's not just the Vanyar showing up anymore. Or at least it's changing. Uh, there are several versions of it in the Lost Road. Um, but anyway, okay. Uh, so oh, let's keep going. We got to the Elrond is back. This, I believe, is the, the slide we ended with last time. My father was Eärendil, who was born in Gondolin seven years before it fell, and my mother was Elwing, daughter of Luthien, daughter of King Thingol of Doriath, and I have seen many ages in the west of the world. I was at the council I speak of, for I was the minstrel and counselor of Gilgalad. And as we said last time, Elrond is back. Not only is Elrond now, you know, the Elrond of Rivendell, who's been there since The Hobbit, but who was only previously, like, kind of named after and slightly inspired by the old Elrond, now he is clearly, explicitly, in all ways, genealogically, story-wise, he is the Elrond from the Silmarillion. And not only is he tied there through all of these stories, all this wealth of reference that gets brought in uh, to this one sentence, right? But it's also, he's also playing the same role now in this story that he played. And that, to me, is even more important, right? And I, we talked about this briefly at the very, very end last time, that Elrond's role was, he was the transition, right? He's like the whole first age gets kind of distilled genealogically uh, down into Elrond and after the end, right? After the War of Wrath, when we have, because in a sense, that was the point of the whole mythology at the beginning, was to set up the current situation, how did the world get to where it is, right? It was always a kind of explanatory myth of our world, right? This world in which humans are dominant, right? And yet there are still memories of elves and fairies and magic, right? And some places where perhaps the fairies may linger, um, you know, they've diminished and, and, you know, but we still retain stories of them and, uh, and maybe there are places where you can still, you know, where some still encounter them at times and whatever. Like that's, that's our current situation, right? That's the modern world. How did we get here, right? That ultimately that's kind of the question that the Silmarillion, the original Silmarillion material is answering. Elrond is the is the 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 transition right the 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 he's the the sort of the gateway between the ancient world uh before it changes and the dominion of man of men begins and the later world right that was his that was his role that was his job it's still his role right we see him so that the role that tolkien gives to elrond reborn here right elrond of rivendell is to be the link back to the first age right I have seen in many ages of the West of the world, I was at the council I speak of, for I was the minstrel and counselor of Gilgalad. Um, so that's really cool. And we see that, uh, we see that this um, uh, is, is... So again, to me, it's really important, not just that he has the references, but that he's playing the same role. We can see he really is kind of taking all the Silmarillion ways of thinking, right? And, and, and really fully integrating them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so, yeah, Arthur, I agree. Arthur says, uh, in the intriguing specificity of seven years before it fell, uh, uh, 
uh, gives a, a more mysterious mood. You're right, Arthur, doesn't it kind of... It's like the natural response to that sentence would be, tell me more about the fall of Gondolin and the birth of Arendal, right? Oh, we really wish we knew these stories. If only someone would publish the Silmarillion. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, let's... Um, but now let's, let's go. So now we get back to the, the one I was getting to. My last uh, uh, one from last time. The armies of elves and men were joined once more, and we marched eastward and crossed the misty mountains and passed into the inner lands far from the memory of the sea. And we became weary, and sickness was heavy on us, made by the spells of Sauron, for we had come at last to Mordor, the black country, where Sauron had rebuilt his fortress. And it, it is on part of that dreary land that the forest of Mirkwood now stands, and it derives its darkness and dread from the ancient evil added of the soil. Sauron could not drive us away, for the power of the elves was in those days still very great, though waning, and we besieged his stronghold for seven, changed to ten years. And at last Sauron came out in person and wrestled with Gilgalad, and Elendil came to his rescue, and both were mortally wounded, but Sauron was thrown down and his bodily shape was destroyed. His servants were dispelled, and the host of Beleriand broke his stronghold and razed it to the ground. Gilgalad and Elendil died. But Sauron's evil spirit fled away and was hidden for a long while in waste places. Yet after an age he took shape again and has long troubled the northern world, added, but his power is less than of old. Notice now, this is the next step, right? The first step was the real integration of the Silmarillion material, and we saw that, right? We saw that there in those last two slides. Um, that was Gilgalad and El and. Elrond, right? That was the story of Gilgalad being fully integrated. The character of Elrond being fully integrated. But you notice what happens now? This is, I would say, even more exciting, right? The first slide I did, this one, right, is a retelling of the story of the Last Alliance, very much like it was in the Fall of Numenor, in the later versions of the Fall of Numenor that you can read at the beginning of The Lost Road, right? So again, which is, which is exciting, right? Tolkien incorporating that stuff wholesale. What we get here is much more exciting, right? Because here what we get is further development of the story. Now, as it has been integrated into The Lord of the Rings, he's moving it forward. We never got this kind of detail. The Last Alliance... The story of the Last Alliance got retold a bunch of times. Tolkien kept going back and refining it and that kind of thing. Um, but it never got that much detail, right? That, that Notice we get geography. Notice the geography is still northern geography. We're still only going east-west. We're not going to way down south, right? So we're going from, from presumably, the greater Rivendell area, from, from Beleriand, right, out on the northwest coast, across through the, through the Rivendell area, over the Misty Mountains, and out into, the, into Mordor, which is obviously on the other side of the Misty Mountains, right? Because Mirkwood is there, right? Suburb of, well, not suburb, subset, right? Subsection of, of Mordor. Um, anyway, so, so yeah, so they're, they, they head west over the Misty Mountains, and then we get all these details about, uh, um, about the, the, the sickness and weariness, uh, laid upon the elves by the spells of Sauron, right? And they're besieging, uh, his fortress for seven or ten years, uh, ten presumably not to be outdone by the Greeks at Troy, right? But anyway, uh, so the, uh, you know, and, and then the, 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 the wrestling between Sauron and Gilgalad is, well, it wasn't Sauron, 
in the earliest versions of the Lost Road necessarily in the of the of the Last Alliance necessarily. But anyway, um, the wrestling between Gilgalad and, and Sauron is 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 still kind of an old concept, right? Um, but the destruction of his bodily shape, the destruction of his stronghold, the uh, evil spirit fleeing away, right, but then taking shape and becoming strong again, all these things which we, we know and think of as, like, you know, sort of the core backstory of the Lord of the Rings. We know now, right, on page 216 of The Return of the Shadow, that was not the core of the Lord of the Rings story, right? Um... Now we can see the Lord of the Rings story being genuinely fused. How does he become the necromancer, right? How do we end up with the necromancer in The Hobbit? Um, once the door is opened, now the whole a whole world of further development of the Silmarillion combined with retcon of The Hobbit is opened, right? And it's open season on all that stuff, and we can see that stuff happening, right? So let's let's go back and retcon the necromancer. Let's go and de- and 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 continue and develop those Silmarillion stories, and it's all good, right? Um, and it all comes together. I think it is really really uh, cool to start watching this stuff happening. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, actually. Uh, Veronica, he can take shape again in The Lord of the Rings. He just can't take a, a friendly shape again. That's the restriction on Sauron. His uh, his pleasant, cheerful form uh, is destroyed when the Numenor falls, and he can't ever be pleasant and cheerful again. He can only be the uh, the dictator. Um, but anyway, um, uh, yeah, no, um, Rachel, thanks for asking. Rachel is asking, uh, saying uh, she can't remember, did Sauron's name first appear when he started writing The Lord of the Rings? Um, uh, no, no. The name Sauron came in with the Numenor story. Um, he was Thu, right, uh, in the, uh, uh, the, the, the early material, right? He was Thu the wizard, Thu the necromancer, right, in the, uh, the story of Baron and Luthien, in the, in the poem, The Lay of Lathian. Um, and he's still through primarily. He starts getting called Sauron in the later Silmarillion material, and especially the fall of Numenor. The name Sauron uh, really comes in with the the fall of Numenor material. So he's been Sauron since the, since since Numenor, right? Since the Numenor stuff that Tolkien has just been writing within the last three years before he starts writing this stuff. Um, so it's still relatively new, but he doesn't make it up. Um, he doesn't make it up with this. <laughs> <laughs> regarding the pretty form of, of Sauron. Tom Hillman says, handsome isn't as handsome doesn't. Yes, yes, apparently. Uh, good, okay. So, that's me finishing stuff from last time. Today, we, we're, we, we've now gotten to the point, right, where Bingo's gotten to Rivendell, right? Remember, that was the goal. Right from the beginning, when Tolkien set out to write this sequel, he had you know he he was complaining at the beginning that he had no ideas of what to do. Right, and we saw him in his early notes, kind of scrambling around looking for an adventure. Right, and he was kind of throwing stuff against the wall, like what kind of things could they do? Maybe they find a witch house. Right, and then he's like, oh, brainwave Tom Bombadil, why not? Let's bring in Tom Bombadil and the Barrow Whites. That'll be great. Right, remember all that stuff. Right, but but from the beginning, the one constant was Bingo's going to Rivendell. Right, that was. That was the one thing that he knew for sure. Well, we've gotten to Rivendell. Now what? Right? And we've had some glimpses of now what? Right? We've had some glimpses of, um, you know, he... Like the quest for the fiery mountain, right? 
we've had very little about that. We had that one note, so it's on the table, right? But we don't know what that's going to look like. Presumably it'll be in Mordor, I guess. That is to say on the other side of the Misty Mountains over in the greater Mirkwood region. But, uh, but anyway, yeah. So it's, it's, it's been pretty clear that this is the only part of the story, that is his trip to Rivendell is really the only part of the story that Tolkien has been, has sort of clearly uh, foreseen. Now, Notice. Notice where it ends. Do you remember what episode, what is happening in Rivendell when Tolkien breaks off the narrative? As far as the first phase gets, what's the end of the first phase? What's he in the middle of describing? Do you remember the scene? Do you remember the scene? Oh, and sorry, to Jordan and Michael were both teasing me about Tevildo. Um, I no, no, no. Sauron and Tevildo are not the same. They were never the same, right? Uh, the, I I think it is a complete misunderstanding to say Tevildo the cat turns into Sauron. No, he plays the role that will later be played by Thu, this, the necromancer. In that, like. In the early version of the story, Tevildo the cat is the prisoner, is the the, the jailer, right, of Baron. Uh, Baron is 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 imprisoned by Tevildo the cat. In the later version of the story, Baron is imprisoned by Thu the necromancer. That doesn't mean that Thu and Tevildo have anything else in common, right? Uh, they were put into that role in the story, but I don't believe I I, I think it's misleading. Uh, frankly, I think that even Christopher indulged in a, some slightly misleading sensationalism in saying something like that, that the role of Sauron was played by a, by a monstrous cat uh, when he was trying to drum up interest in the first couple, in the Book of Lost Tales, basically. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't, uh, um, when looking at like the, the, the ancestry of Sauron in, in Tolkien's thought, I do not, inc- myself, I do not include Tevildo um, among his forebears at all. Um, Tevilda was displaced by Sauron. He didn't turn into him. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> Jordan says even Sauron isn't a cat person. Yeah. Um, okay, right. Well, Nick, we do get his waking up in Rivendell and talking to Gandalf, but he gets one thing past that. Right? Anybody remember? The actual scene he interrupts like he stops in the middle of? Bingo's conversation with Glowen about what's going on back at the Lonely Mountain. That's as far as he gets, right? We bring in Glowen, right? And we're having a conversation with Glowen. Um, and that is that seems to be the chronological end point of this first wave of composition. Uh, that's the high water mark of phase one, uh, is the conversation with Glowen. And that, to me, is a really, really fascinating thing. Why? Well, and we'll come back to this. Connection to the Hobbit, right? More on this later. Um, but we interrupt this narrative 
to stop for some revisions, right? And so today what I want to focus on is that last chapter in phase one, as Christopher Tolkien has called it, the queries and alterations chapter. And I want to look at the different notes. You know, I, I mean, I keep saying this. I love this stuff, right? I love it. Um, as much fun as it is to read earlier drafts of the narrative and compare and contrast the narrative, I find it even more fun to look at Tolkien's notes, right? The sort of the sketches and ideas that he has. Um, and things like this when he's asking himself questions and trying to sort things out. So much fun to see this stuff happen. So we're going to look at those here today. And I've kind of reorganized them a little bit. I'm not, I'm not presenting them in the way that Tolkien seems to have written them, which is how Christopher presents them. I wanted to kind of break it down into a few different issues that Tolkien seems to be thinking through uh, in this, uh, in this uh, section. So I want to talk about, first, him rethinking characters, right, especially the Hobbit characters. Then I want to look at uh, some of the work that he does to smooth inconsistencies that are clearly bugging him when he goes back and looks at it. Third, uh, uh, his reconsideration of the whole like wo- wide world of hobbits, right? That we were looking at that really emerged at Bree, uh, with the Bree land hobbits as not the outskirts of hobbitry, but the center of hobbitry, really, and the Shire as only one of two sides with the rangers and everything. So his reconsideration of all that. Um, his uh, his reconsideration of Gandalf, right? I mean, we've been talking, especially as as uh, the you know the latter said, the trip from Bree to uh, to Rivendell really begins to show some problems, right? With Gandalf, as we've been discussing this, like what what is Gandalf doing, right? And why is Gandalf doing it? Why isn't Gandalf doing more? How can Gandalf possibly justify what he does and doesn't do, and how he's and the tones of his messages and things like that? Um, Gandalf clearly needs to be made to fit, right? And uh, Tolkien obviously felt the same way, and so we're going to look at what he does there uh, with uh, with Gandalf's role in the story. Fifth, we're going to talk about the nature of the ring, right? As Tolkien does some serious thinking about the nature of the ring, and he makes some very important progress, obviously, uh, towards the final conception of the ring. And then I want to touch on the one of these notes, which seems to... Uh, uh, point to where the story is headed. What's going to happen in the second half of the book, right? Because uh, that seems to be clearly what it is, right? The first half of the book is the trip to Rivendell. The second half of the book is something else, right? And we're going to see what what are the what are the plans for the second half of the book, as far as we can tell from these notes. And then, of course, we'll look at his plans to go back and start over again, which is, of course, what he's actually going to do. So that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of class today. So let's start with rethinking our cast of characters. Too many hobbits. Also, Bingo Bulger Baggins a bad name. Let Bingo equal Frodo, a son of Primula Brandybuck, but a father Drogo Baggins. Bilbo's first cousin. So Frodo, equals Bingo, is Bilbo's first cousin once removed both on Tookside and on Baggins. Also, he has proper name Baggins. Yes! Frodo struck out. No, I am now too used to Bingo. Dang it! Oh, man, so close! Like, oh, it's just awful, right? Uh, you know, if, uh, if not for the fact that Tolkien never suspected these notes are going to be published, I would have thought he was uh, uh, he was actually trolling us in this paragraph. <laughs> right? So close! Oh, oh dear. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so, okay, so we almost got there, or he does get there, right? I mean, we can see the conception emerges right here. And by the way, this is exactly like what happened in The Hobbit. 
exactly like what happened in The Hobbit. So, as I've mentioned before, uh, two of the main characters of The Hobbit have start with a different name, right? For Bilbo is always Bilbo. Um, and most of the dwarves have the same name, but the two major differences, Gandalf is the name of the chief dwarf. He is not Thorin, he is Gandalf. Uh, and the wizard is named Bloodorthin. So it is Bloodorthin and Gandalf, uh, you know, Gandalf in company with Bloodorthin the wizard and Bilbo Baggins the hobbit all the way through. I mean, a long, long, long time. All the way through Mirkwood. It's it's the Gandalf is not the name of the wizard until he shows up again at the Lonely Mountain, in, like way down at Arkenstone time. Okay, um, so uh, so 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 we have that. But but it's interesting. There's a note that he wrote, right? You know, where he's like, hmm, no. Why don't we change this? Let's call the wizard Gandalf, and let's call the dwarf Thorin. Uh, oh, and he also changed Bjorn's name. Bjorn was Medwen, uh, and he changed it like and let Medwen equal Bjorn, right? So he wrote all these things exactly like it's gonna be. We know he's eventually gonna get there, right? And so he has, and that was early. It was like at the beginning of Mirkwood that he had that idea, and he wrote that note in the side, and then he just like this, he pitches it. He's like. Nah, nah, it's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm too used to you know Gandalf and Bladorth, and I'm leaving it. And then he continues on and continues on all the way to until finally Gandalf doesn't cease to you know the first dwarf doesn't cease to be uh, 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 Gandalf until he crawls out of the barrel at Lake Town, and then he's Thorin, son of Thorin, and son of Thor, uh, Th- son of Thor. Finally, um, uh, no, uh, uh, so Michael, it's complicated. The reason the dwarf would be called Gandalf is it was a dwarf name. Yes, the technical name, uh, the technical, tra- like the tra- literal translation of the name Gandalf is like wand elf, uh, like uh, elvish creature who is sort of magical in some sense or I, something like that. We don't really know. But anyway, Gandalf, that's what it means. Gandalf is a dwarf's name. Like it's, it's all of the dwarves, all of the, almost all the dwarves. I always have to say almost all because Balin isn't in there for some reason. But anyway, almost all the dwarves. Um, in the Hobbit are taken straight from the list of the names of dwarves in the Voluspa, in the in in the the Icelandic Voluspa, right from the Eddas. So all of them, Gandalf is there, one of the dwarves in there. So using Gandalf as the name of one of the dwarves is just being consistent, right? Uh, you know, Gandalf is right there with with uh, with uh, you know Dwalin and 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 Ori and Dori and Bori and all the rest of them, right? Um, so that's totally consistent. And the reason, of course, for that, Michael, is that the uh, the word elf was used a little bit differently and slightly more generically um, in in Norse, in, in Old Norse, than it was uh, in modern English. But uh, anyway, so uh, so yes, okay, so so we see, so he he's doing it to us again, right? The inspiration. I should change the name, right? Bingo is a terrible name. <laughs> change his name to Frodo and make him a Baggins and not a Bulger Baggins, right? Um, is uh, this 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 impulse comes to him and once again he resists the impulse. Uh, fortunately, like the first time, he is eventually going to give into it, as we know. Um, but uh, there it is, right there, and um, uh, and he still does not uh, does not see it. D- does not um, does not receive it. Anyway, um, the one other thing we can notice from this, though, apart from the fact that uh, 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 that he has failed to make the change that we we're all hoping he was going to make, <clears throat> is that 
the proximity to Bilbo, right? That's the other big thing that we can see. Um, the other major change he's wanting to make to still Bingo's character is uh, is that he he wants to really make him a Baggins. You remember in the earlier version, he was just he was Bingo Bolger, right? His father was a Bolger. Um, he was not related to Bilbo on the Baggins side. He was related to Bilbo on the mother's side, right? On their mother's side, they were both Tooks on their mother's side, and so they were connected that way. He he solidifies the connection to Bingo, so uh, or to Bilbo. So Bingo is still going to be adopted by Bilbo. He's not going to be actually his son, as you'll remember he was in version three of the the Long Expected Party uh, uh, story, chapter. Um, but, uh, so he's still going to be adopted, but he's not going to be as adopted, right? He's still a Baggins. Or, yeah, he, he, he's, he's going to be a Baggins, and he's going to be tied to Bilbo on both sides. So that, that, that closer kinship to Bilbo is clearly, you know, he, he wants to solidify, it seems, the ties between Bingo and Bilbo. So that's one thing we can definitely observe. But, um, he might not change, um, um, yeah, Marielle, that's a great point. Marielle says she strongly dislikes the name Bingo Bolger Baggins, but it would fit with a light-hearted tale like Farmer Giles of Ham, as this is a sign that Tolkien is further com- uh, committing to the tone of the Silmarillion material over that of The Hobbit. Marielle, I suspect so. Um, you'll notice, of course, right, how the Silmarillion tone and the Silmarillion diction was creeping into, was you know, in evidence there in Elrond's speech when he was telling the story of Gilgalad, it, that doesn't sound like that anywhere in The Hobbit anymore, right? Even when The Hobbit was telling, was sort of recycling old stories, right? It didn't sound a thing like that. So yes, we're, we're we are shifting, and I do think, um, you know, that seems to be the real turning point, I guess. I mean, it'll be interesting to see when we go back through the second phase, right? Uh, you know, Mario, it's something I hope we keep in mind, right, is to, to look at how and where that diction changes um, when it ceases to be in style like the <clears throat> style of the early Hobbit, right? Um, and sort of exactly why that is. But I certainly, the shift to the Silmarillion material matters here. Um, and Nick, you're right. We were even beginning to get it in Trotter's speech, especially once Trotter starts talking about Baron and Luthien. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We were, uh, we were getting there. Um, um, now, Michael, I don't know enough to answer this question. Of course, the connotations of bingo to the modern reader, right, are powerful, right? Um, whether it's the whether it's the childhood song about the dog, or whether it's the game, you know, like, uh, play, you know, the, the game of bingo. And I don't know how old either one of those two things are. I don't know what kind... I mean, you can see how it emerges organically from inside Tolkien's nomenclature system, right? I mean... Bilbo was already the father, or the son of Bungo, right? So Bingo is a very similar name, right? So it's it all um, it all makes sense, right? But exactly as Michael asks, is it kind of like um, Tuna, you know, that that how like Tolkien being kind of oblivious to the fact that uh, everyone's going to be thinking of fish when we get the name of the hill upon which the city of Tyrion is built? Uh, I I'm not sure. Again, to answer that, Michael, I'd have to know more. If somebody wants to do research and tell me when, 
either of those things were. Was the song and bingo was his name-o in circulation? Is that so- and in, in England? Like, I mean, w- was it around? If so, was it just American? Um, and when, you know, when did that start? I have no idea. And uh, the game of bingo. How long has that been around? I don't know that either. So, uh, so I, I would love to learn both of those things, but I don't know them. Uh, anyway, so... We do have a. We do, though. I hope you uh, all noticed. We do get a significant silver lining, right? Right. Oh, Nancy points out, or the expression "bingo," right? Yeah, which presumably predates the game, right? Just say "bingo," right? I mean, presumably that that uh, um, that predates the game. Uh, so Brianna says, okay, according to Wikipedia, the song. Dates from 1780. Okay, uh, and 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 was in England. Okay, then yeah, if that's the case, Michael, I'm going with oblivious, right? And again, this and Michael's right to point to tuna as an example. There do seem to be. I mean, there are tuna is one of the most uh, uh, overt examples of this, of how Tolkien can get so immersed in his own like philological thing, right? And get so immersed in the languages and nomenclature of his world that he doesn't even think about how it's going to sound to the... Un- like it, uh, you know, so he could think of bingo and not even re- think that everyone's going to be associating that with um, um, with everything else. Um, okay. Okay, so, yeah, a bunch of people are saying, okay, the, 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 the game does seem to be around um in the early 20th century, so it would have been around by then. That doesn't prove that it was really part of Tolkien's consciousness. Um, yeah, see, exactly. That seems a little too tight for me. Matthew points out there was a patent on the British version of the game Bingo done in 1942. That's too late. right? 42, obviously, is too late. But if the patent only came through in 42, I'm thinking if it started in the 20s and 30s, it might not be that widespread, right? There's no necessary reason to think that Tolkien would know about that or or, uh, or that it would really be a, you know, a big sort of part of his... Uh, his his worldview exactly, Brian. I I could easily believe that he was just totally unaware that that uh, that that existed. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Yana, I, exactly. I don't know about the song. I mean, okay, so the song is old, right? But um, uh, well, okay. Jordan and Arthur are pointing out that a game like that has been around since like the 16th century. Sure, yeah, but. That's not the same thing, right? To say that you know a, a lottery game of chance of that kind was played as early as who cares? Like that doesn't, as far as like the culture identity of bingo, like that that people would associate that with the word bingo. But yeah, I don't think that's going to be that necessarily means uh, anything, right? Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Marielle points out there was a character named Bingo Little in uh, uh, one of P.J. Woodhouse, uh, Woodhouse's short stories. That's more likely. That Tolkien would have heard, right? But that's very... P.J. Woodhouse is exactly the, the name, right? The, the, the style of the names. Like, Hobbit names are just like Woodhouse names, right? Just like them. Um, all the nicknames, right? Anyway. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Right, 
Right, good. Yeah, Veronica points out the game was called Beano until 1929. Exactly. So even if anyone knew, even if Tolkien had known of it, he wouldn't have... The question is, when would this name have, like, triggered the association with that name? And clearly not until around contemporaneously with this. And so, therefore, probably the game is irrelevant. But, um... The song might be, but again, he may not have heard that either. I'm I'm willing to believe that he could have been uh, that he could have been innocent of both of those things, of both the game and the song. Um, right, Nick, exactly. That is the one influence we know that he did have, namely the family, the teddy bear family of bingos, that horrible demonic, uh, uh, you know, destroying things with high explosives family of bears that apparently Priscilla and Christopher had. Um, but I suspect if their na- if the name of the bingos came from anywhere, Wodehouse, I would suspect, could very well be it. Um, but anyway, let's go back to the silver lining, right? The bad news is we come so close to Frodo, but we don't quite get there. The good news uh, is that we do get one awesome thing. Uh, Christopher says, All of this from, No, I am now too used to bingo, was struck out in pencil. So after all that, st- the, the stuff, we're going to do it next, actually, when he's reshuffling the companions of bingo. He crosses all that stuff out. And at the same time, my father wrote Sam Gamgee in the margin. And to bingo originally intended to go alone, he added, With Sam. It may be that this is where he first set down Sam Gamgee's name. So, hey, okay, we got this close to getting rid of Bingo and getting Frodo instead, but at least we're getting Sam, right? So, uh, interesting that Sam sort of, the, the idea of Sam seems to emerge in... What's fascinating to me about that is that, at least from the context of this notes, we don't really know because he's writing it in the margin, right? So that could have been at, a, at sort of a different time, and it was obviously not kind of... Because it's in the margin, it sort of shows it's not an organic part of this particular thought process that we're seeing in those paragraphs, but um, like, what triggered Sam? Why Sam? Right? What was the need for Sam? What led to Sam? We don't know. Like Sam Gamgee written in the margin is like the immaculate conception of Sam Gamgee at this moment, right? Uh, so I don't know. It's but it's pretty cool, and I goodness knows I'm exactly. Mariel says, "Who cares? It's Sam." Totally agree. Totally agree. Stephen, doubtless it was his, um, his, his. You know the intrinsic awesomeness of Sam Gamgee that just sort of forced itself uh, to the surface here. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nadia says it's the third intervention of Iluvatar. Doubtless, doubtless. Um, but one thing that really kind of struck me, you know, Bingo originally intended to go alone with Sam, right? Just added with Sam. No, notice the, like, and he went alone with his servant, you know, that infamous phrase uh, in the Silmarillion, you know, in the of the Rings of Power in the Third Age in the Silmarillion, uh, where Sam doesn't even get named there, um, is... Um, is is I, I love how that phrasing is already almost implicit there in the very very first reference that we get uh, to Sam there. So um, anyway, of course, had to point this out. We don't have much to say about it yet because we don't have any more information. But boy, is that a relief! So I can I can live with Bingo for a little while longer if only you know now that I know that Sam Gamgee is is uh, has firmly uh, pushed himself above the horizon. Um, so let's now turn to... Oh, no, wait. Well, the one last thing. Let's, let's look at those companions. This gets kind of confusing, but let's try, to, let's try to sort this out. 
Frodo, i.e. Took, right, the old Frodo, and Odo are in the know and see Bingo off at gate after the party. So notice his first impulse here as he's trying to shift things around in the story and reduce the number of hobbits, right? Too many hobbits, remember, is where he started with here with this note. Um, So his first impulse is to say fewer companions for Bingo, right? He doesn't want Bingo traveling across the Shire with Frodo and Odo anymore, right? So Frodo and Odo are going to know about it, but they're going to wave goodbye at the gate. Would it not be well to cancel sale and have Odo as heir and in charge? Though many things could be given away. The Sackville Bagginses could quarrel with Odo. Um, okay, well, all right. So first thing here, um, I have to, I have to cordially disagree with Christopher Tolkien. Christopher suggests in his commentary here that you know this seems you know perhaps this is the 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 birth or the anticipation of the idea of like you know the the hobbit that's left behind the the fatty bulger character right who's left behind in in crick hollow um i mean yeah in a sense like it's a little bit parallel but to me it seems very very different right i mean i think that uh, odo as the heir of bingo and taking over in bag end and you know continuing to fight the good fight with the Sackville Baggins is, is not at all like fatty. I mean, the, the dissimilarities between the story of Odo took as we get in that, um, um, in that version, in, you know, in this brief glimpse and the story of Fatty Bulger, uh, that we get later are, th- those stories are so dissimilar that I have a really hard time, uh, connecting them really at all. Um, instead, to me, the really interesting thing is, right, notice this is one major impulse that's changing, right? Um, the money, right? The idea that Bingo's actually run out of his money uh, seems to be called into question here. I mean, if Odo's going to be his heir uh, and uh, and many things are going to be given away, but presumably he, Odo, is going to hang on to, to Bag End, right? That changes the idea that Bingo and Frodo are, or excuse me, <clears throat> Bilbo and Bingo are just, you know, gone broke and skipping town, right? And of course, that makes sense. Because originally, when, 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 when that was the original premise of the story, there was no other premise. Remember, they had nowhere to go and nothing to do. He didn't know why, where they were going and why they were leaving the Shire. So... They've come to their end of their their end the the end of their money and off they go into the blue to seek adventure, was a a kind of a a, a placeholder hook right for their story. Now they don't need that anymore. Now the Black Riders have come in. We've got Sauron pursuing them. We're fine. They've got plenty of reasons to leave. Um, so we don't need to make them destitute anymore. And we're not going to be going searching for dragon gold. We've definitely rejected that idea again with the whole emergence of the ring plot. So, uh, so why not? Right. Why not? Um, though notice he can't quite the, the, so he's thinking about canceling the sale, right? Just the getting rid of everything in bag end, the sort of the second auction in a sense. Um, but he still doesn't want to, uh, to, to cut the scene with the, with the tags, right? And, uh, Bilbo's snarky remarks to people or Bing, Bilbo or Bingo's snarky remarks on, on tags, right? To people, uh, to, to get, you know, he's, we still want to give away convex mirrors and waste paper baskets, right? Uh, even if we're not going broke, we still need to to keep that. Tolkien obviously still wanted that because you could say that's what that's my understanding of. Though many things could be given away, right? Good. At least we can still give away convex mirrors. 
Frodo and possibly Odo go on the first stage of road because Frodo's news about black riders is necessary, right? Okay, so so he's now immediately rethinking them saying goodbye at the gate, right? But the reason he gives for this is is because remember Frodo was the one who told the story of like, oh yeah, just remembered now that we've met the black riders, I saw one of these black chaps right up in the north farthing coming south, right? He was looking for baggins, didn't think anything of it at the time, right? Um, that came in after the intervention of the black riders, right? So apparently that piece of dialogue that re- revelation from Frodo that he's seen the Black Rider before um, and therefore giving some kind of context for there. Because remember, the, the purpose of that, the function that that played in the plot was this is when it is revealed to Bingo, they're hunting for you. Because he didn't know that otherwise, right? It's just like, dude, black dude comes on black horse up the path, sniffing around, acting a little creepy, but they have no reason to think they're hunting for them personally, right? That's what he learns from Frodo. Right when Frodo tells that story about the North Farthing, it's oh no, he's hunting Baggins. It's probably you he's looking for. Right, um, so that's the key thing that he's wanting to retain. So so he's like maybe well, let's compromise. Right, instead of dropping Odo and, and Frodo entirely, let's let them come on the first stage, just for like maybe until we meet the elves or something. Right, so that um, uh, 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 we can we can impart that. But the, at the latest, though, they're going to say goodbye at Buckleberry. But Frodo says goodbye at Buckleberry. Only Merry and Bingo ride on into exile because Merry insists. Bingo originally intended to go alone. This also a major change. Remember, from the very earliest drafts, there were always people who were in the know, and they were part of the plan, right? Like, he's going to go off... Um, he was never planning to go alone at any point, right? He was always going off with his friends, Um the idea that Bingo had intended to go off alone is interesting, and frankly, I'm not sure what to make of it. Is that supposed to be ominous, right? Why? Why does Bingo, in this newly revised version, right, why is the new Bingo, who was almost Frodo, why is the new Bingo now intending to go alone, right? Um... Is it because he's now aware of his danger and wanting to leave his friends behind in order to keep them out of danger? That's possible, right? Could it be more ominous than that? Could it have something to do with the ring and the ring's influence over him? That also seems conceivable based on some of the things that Tolkien's going to say later on uh, in these notes. But we have now, at the same point that the idea that Bingo is intending to go alone, at the same point that that comes in, we also have the theme of, but his friends won't let him go alone, right? Mary is the the one who is chiefly insisting right, uh, here. Uh, And so Mary and Bingo are going to go alone, so it's going to be a two-person companionship. Remember, this is right before Sam Gamgee has not quite yet emerged, right? Um, But uh, anyway, so that's great. That's really interesting that... uh, we see that um, that that beginning there. Okay, probably best would be to have only Frodo took, who sees Bingo to Buckleberry, and then Merry. Cut out Odo. Poor Odo. Alas, poor Odo. We barely knew ye. Even better to have Frodo and Merry at the gate. Frodo says goodbye then, and is left in charge of the Shire, i.e. in the Shire, at Bag End. Merry, it's not the idea, I... I Christopher seems to be quick to point out here that um, 
he doesn't believe his father is suggesting that like Bingo is delegating the rulership of the entire Shire uh, to Frodo Took. Right. Uh, anyway, okay. Um, Mary C. Black Riders in the North. So his the, the 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 final place where he kind of ends up here, right, is that he uh, um, he's going to make the whole thing more efficient, right? Okay, let's go back to leaving Frodo Took behind at the gate, right? Um, but Mary's going to come along with him the whole way, right? So no longer is he meeting up with Mary at Buckleberry, right? Mary's going to be, and so he's just going to give to Mary the insight about um, about uh, the the Black Riders hunting him, right? Um, okay, cool. So that seems uh, that seems fun, right? And so we're and so and with the emergence of Sam Gamgee, everybody's happy. So this is our reshuffling of characters. Issue number two: smoothing out inconsistencies. Well, somebody's getting de-invited to the party, right? Dale men and dwarfs at party. Is this good? Rather spoils meeting of Bingo and Glowin. Also unwise to bring big people to Hobbiton. Simply make Gandalf and dwarfs bring things from Dale. First, does it strike you as strange as it strikes me that he's saying dwarfs in his notes with an FS, right? After the almighty stink he made about that in The Hobbit, right? I mean, in The Hobbit, he uses D-W-A-R-V-E-S as the plural of dwarf, although the dictionary usage was dwarfs, as he's using here. Um... And so, therefore, he got into row after row with publishers, right, both his English publishers, and then even more pointedly, his American publishers, who take it upon themselves to correct it all the way through and being like, oh, well, he's misspelled dwarves all the, you know, dwarfs all the way through, and they, 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 they reconnect, they, they correct it back to dwarves, to dwarfs, and Tolkien strongly objects and, like, pulls rank as a philologist, right? I think I know about language. Thank you very much. Stop correcting me, you bloody ignorant Americans. Um, it's just, yeah. No, Kate, I'm not saying he's being inconsistent because he's not, I mean, it's not part of the story. It's just notes to himself. What interests me, right, is that this seems to suggest, therefore, that this is still how he thought. Like, privately the plural of dwarf is still dwarfs in his own head, right? He adopts the usage consistently in his work, right? Um, But, like, when he's off-duty, he still uses dwarf S, right? Okay, interesting. It's just a small point, but uh, uh, but I think think it's interesting, right? It's just kind of revealing um, that he does have that kind of different place that he's in, right? When he's thinking in terms of, like, making the languages consistent. Um, And it's not just because he actually, this was his own private, consistent internal usage, right? It wasn't at all, apparently. Which is interesting. Okay. Um, That's a small point, though. So, remember, in the early version, and of course, the long-expected party was so long ago now that you might not even remember it, but of course you may remember that it was not only dwarves that were there. Remember uh, how outlandish the long-expected party got? Um, in the second version of it, um, way back when we did that chapter. And 
the, it was one of the main things that we observed. We got Gandalf and the fireworks and everything in that second version of the story, but we also got not only dwarves at the party, but men from Dale and elves as well. There were men, elves, and dwarves. Um, they're involved in the preparations for Bilbo's party, and this is what he's questioning. Not elves, right? They don't come in here. Um, and the dwarves apparently get to stay, but the real question, is it okay to have Dale men at the party? Um, his first query, or his first thought, um, that it rather spoils the meeting of Bingo and Glowen makes all kinds of sense when you think about that in the... I mean, he he just interrupted that scene. I mean, on the one hand, it seems a little bit strange if you think of it in a vacuum, right? Like, in chapter one, like, seriously, is somebody going to get all the way to the Rivendell chapter and be like, but wait a second, there were men from Dale at the party, right? I mean... But, of course, it makes all kinds of sense since he was just writing that conversation, right? But it seems to me that the latter part of this paragraph is the bigger part, right? Also unwise to bring big people to Hobbiton, right? At the end of the day, that doesn't... He he feels like that doesn't work so well. Because it was kind of a big eruption within Hobbit society. Remember, he even gave the details like they were going down to the pub and they drank all the beer, Right, so all the, the 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 big folk from Dale, they drank all the beer in Hobbiton. You know, I mean, there was. I'm not saying they were necessarily rowdy, but it was disruptive, right? It was it was an intrusion. It was a significant intrusion. That was one of the seemed to be sort of the points of emphasis. Um, you know what um, that makes me think? That would be like Chapter One of the Hobbit, right? That is to say, if Chapter 1 of The Fellowship of the Ring, or Chapter 1 of The War of the Rings, let's just say, because the division into the different volumes isn't going to come until way after the story's written. Chapter 1 of The War of the Rings, in its first conception, as we've talked about before, is, is parallel with, we remember how, how intimately he was connecting it, um, how overtly he was connecting it to the f- Chapter 1 of The Hobbit, right? Um... And of course, when we think back to Chapter One of the Hobbit, the number one, the main thing, the main force of the action there was the unexpected party, obviously, right? And how adventure shows up at Bilbo's house and forces itself into his domestic arrangements, right? And and here is his quiet, cheerful parlor in Bag End, now full of dwarves talking about adventurous things, right? Um, and then himself getting drawn into this adventure. So this world, this crazy, unexpected world of adventure descends upon his quiet, hobbitly home. What we can see, in a sense, if we think about the Dale men coming to prepare for Bilbo's party, which is long expected, so it's in that way different, but we can see that it's also parallel to the original party, right? Except it's wider in scope. It's not Bilbo anymore whose home and whose life are being disrupted by the unexpected arrival of adventure. It's all of Hobbiton, which is being similarly disrupted. So the dwarves were to Bilbo's parlor in Bag End, in The Hobbit, as the men of Dale were to the pub of Hobbiton, <laughs> right? Uh, were to the ivy bush. Um, again, it's, that's the argument that I'm making here anyway. And he seems to be questioning that. Let's just make Gandalf and the dwarves bring things from Dale. Right. In other words, let's go back over to that terrain. Gandalf and dwarves showing up in the Hobbiton. In in Hobbiton, right? But by doing the exactly the same thing in Chapter One here that he did, in, 
he actually makes the parallel weaker, not stronger, right? Because it's no longer the intrusion of wild, crazy adventure. Dwarves are outlandish, but they're not that weird, right? And they don't disrupt, we get no evidence of them disrupting local culture, right? As the Dalemen did do in that earlier version. So, um, so fine. Okay. It's, uh, but that makes sense, right? It makes sense because again, we're no longer just paralleling the Hobbit anymore. We're still in the same world as the Hobbit, but now looking back at this beginning, he's not just doing something that's parallel, though slightly different in scope to the Hobbit, he's now doing his own thing, and so he's able to kind of look at that question of the intervention of Dale Men into Hobbiton society, like, from a different angle, right, than he did before. So that's an interesting piece of, uh, of increased consistency that uh, he gets. In the end, he's saying, you know, the whole big people in Hobbiton thing isn't going to really work out. Um, and then here's this other thing that was clearly bothering him. Sting. Did Bilbo take this? What of the armor? Various possibilities. A. Bingo has armor, but loses it in Barrow. B. Gandalf urges him to take armor, but it is heavy, and he leaves it at Buckleberry. C. He likes it, and it saves him in the Barrow, but is stolen at Bree. So he's wrestling with this. Now, as Christopher points out, and I certainly suspect Christopher is right about this, the main issue is Bingo cannot have Bilbo's armor at Weathertop. Right, or else it would have turned the blade of the of the the ringwraith. Right, so Bingo's got to get himself well and truly stabbed, so he can't be wearing Bilbo's armor at Weathertop. So we've got to get rid of it somehow. Um, but the three suggestions that he comes up with first, he doesn't come up with a simple answer. Right, eventually, as we see at the very very end of the chapter, like the last Tolkien's last thought before going back and starting, it's like he finally solves it. He, he's thinking about this and he's not sure what to do, and then he thinks through all this other stuff, and then finally, right before he sets this aside and says, "Okay, let's go back and rewrite chapter one," it comes to him. Bilbo carries off memoirs to Rivendell. Of course, yeah. So Bingo never has the armor, never has the opportunity to have the armor. Of course, Bilbo would take Sting and his armor with him. Duh. Okay. Problem solved, right? But notice his first three impulses, right? What are his three options? Bingo has the armor, but loses it in the barrow. So, okay, so Bingo is going to inherit the armor, and he's going to have it, right? And he's going to use it, but he's going to lose it in the barrow. This points to how crucial the barrow-white scene was, right? Uh, this is a major adventure uh, of Bingo's on his road, right? Um, but it's also, I think, interesting that Tolkien's first impulse here is to make the encounter with the Barrow White more costly, right? Notice how this affects the overall pattern of the story, right? They were a little dumb, right? They shouldn't have ended up in the barrow. That that was a mistake of them to have... That, I mean, remember Tom Bombadil chides them when he comes um, in these early versions. Um, he does so as well in the published version, though slightly more gently, right? But uh, but still, he does, he does still chide them. Uh, but anyway, but it's not, in the end, 
costly. In fact, they gain from it, right? If they hadn't been taken into that barrow and Tom Bombadil hadn't come and kicked out that barrow white, they wouldn't have had their swords, right? And Tolkien even had pointed out the usefulness of the barrow blades uh, in his early draft with the Nazgul stuff, you know, with the Ringwraith stuff at Weathertop. So um, what seemed, and again, that's a Hobbit pattern, right? What seemed like a really bad mistake which led to a disastrous consequence turns out to be for the best in the long run, right? Um, but his first impulse, which is to me interesting because it kind of goes against that to some extent, is that this disastrous trip to the Barrow Downs is going to be costly to him. He's going to lose his armor, and that's going to be what makes him vulnerable. So we were going to get... That was going to be more pivotal, right? Um, he is only wounded on Weathertop because they were so foolish in the Barrow Downs, right? That's impulse number one. Impulse number two, Gandalf urges him to take the armor, but it's heavy, and he leaves it at Bunkleberry. This suggests, A, Bingo's dumb, right? Or at least he's naive, right? The idea of Bingo as a clueless newbie adventurer, and also somebody who's probably not taking this whole thing terribly seriously. This is not somebody who is going off, you know, under pursuit into adventures into the unknown, right? This is somebody who's still engaging in a hobbit walking party, right? And yes, Stephen, you're absolutely right that Tolkien does not seem to have the properties of Mithril uh, 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 figured out yet. And great question. He says, you know, does the Hobbit mention Mithril? Yes. If you go back and look, you will find the word Mithril used. But it's a trick, right? Tolkien put the word Mithril in in the later revision. Um, the revision when he revised The Hobbit after the, the third edition of The Hobbit, after The Lord of the Rings was already published. In the first edition of The Hobbit, it's just said that the armor is of silver steel. Um, and no, he clearly did not have that... Um, uh, he clearly did not have the um, the properties of Mithril worked out. Um, but, uh, okay, so... But again, to me, what's most interesting about this is looking at what this suggests to us about Bingo's character and about his um, um, his overall um, um, uh, his 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 overall viewpoint. Um, sorry, just received a uh, message from upstairs. <laughs> okay, sorry. Um, I had to respond to a domestic inquiry. Uh, you know, it's, it's like, uh, you know, it's the 21st century when my wife and I are always texting each other in the house. Anyway, um, okay. Third impulse. He likes it, and it saves him in the barrow, but is stolen at Bree. Um, this, I think, is really fascinating because like, he still has to lose it, right? So, so okay, what if, he, what if he loses it? But he doesn't lose it at the barrow. He loses it at Bree. We already had the break-in at Bree, right? So he's already thought of the break-in at Bree, but the break-in at Bree ultimately doesn't do anything, right? That is, it doesn't accomplish anything on the part of the people breaking in. What we have, this, this story as it's given in the first version is there is going to be a break-in, but it's thwarted by Trotter, right? So the impulse is, what, um, what if it's not thwarted, right? Um, what if it's actually stolen a Brie? So the idea that we're going to make that break in it Brie uh, efficacious is cool, right? I think that's really interesting. But, okay, as I say, then we finally get to the the right answer, right? We Certainly the simplest answer. Let's just kick the can on the 
armor and not even bring it in until after Rivendell. Uh, uh, Bilbo took it to Rivendell. And honestly, that makes the most sense of the whole thing. Issue number three, The Wide World of Hobbits. Okay, so it's time for a less comfortable Bree. Bree folk are not to be hobbits. Bring in bit about the upstairs windows. As a result of the, of the hobbits not liking it, Landlord gives them rooms on the side of the house where second floor is level with ground owing to Hill Slope. What is to happen at Bree now? What kind of talk can give away Mr. Hill? With this change, and, and you'll remember, of course, as Christopher reminds us, the very first impulse that Tolkien had was to make Bree a predominantly human town with some hobbits in it, and then he quickly revised that to say, nah, let Bree be a hobbit town. And we were looking at the implications of that, which I think are fascinating, right? This, this, this vista that began to open up of, like, the much wider world of hobbits with Bree at the center and the Shire at one end and the rangers on the other end, um, and how the whole story of Bree was fundamentally a... Hobbit story, right? It was a, it was a, it was one big chapter of hobbitry, right? Um, that goes away, um, and it's interesting to me that the only two things that he brings in explicitly, right? Uh, so I mean, uh, implicitly, he's rejecting that whole deal, right? Um, but that's not what he talks about. The two things he talks about are a, we still have to make sure that their windows are on the ground level. Right, because they have to get invaded through the window, especially if the 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 armor might get stolen this way, right? Because we still we haven't tumbled to the final answer on the armor yet when he writes this. Um, but but even more importantly, we have to accommodate that conversation of throwing dirty dishes out the upstairs windows. That thing, that conversation that they have in the Marish. Uh, originally, and which now we're gonna, we're gonna, yeah, Nancy, isn't it a relief, right, that we, um, uh, that we're gonna preserve that concept in that conversation. I don't think that the men also throw stuff out the upstairs windows, but Arthur, it, it almost makes me think of like, uh, you know, it's, it's like a running joke or Easter egg. I mean, I, I honestly think if I were ever to be in charge, heaven forfend, if I were ever to be in charge of like the, you know, um, consulting on a screenplay for a new Lord of the Rings adaptation, I would <laughs> I would totally want to include somebody throwing dirty dishes out of the top window. Just, like, in the background. Not to make a big deal. Like, they're just walking by, and, like, a set of dirty dishes comes f- f- falling down into the streets. Just just as an Easter egg. Because, you know, it'd be like, there you go, Tollers. I know you'd appreciate that. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so there it is, Karita. Yes, the, uh, the theoretical placement of the upstairs windows conversation. So, phew, that's, uh, that's a relief. Um, true, Nancy, with, with film film, when we get there, it's a given. Absolutely. Absolutely a given. Um, okay, so, um, but notice, notice where Tolkien does, apart from those brief references, what the main thing that Tolkien gets to is, fa- is fascinating to me. And to me, this is the most revealing thing about the initial conception of Brie, right? When you think of Hobbit Brie, as we saw it in those earlier chapters, look at this. He says, okay, let's not make it Hobbit Brie. Let's make it a human town. And then as soon as he does that, he's like, but wait, what's going to happen in Brie now? Right? I mean, 
can we even have a drinking song in a human town? Ah. It's like everything that happened. You think about the whole Bree story, right? They show up at the inn and they have the funny conversation with the funny fat innkeeper. And then they're taken in and given a good dinner. And then they go to the common room and Mary goes out wandering. They go to the common room and they're chatting it up and having fun. And we meet Trotter and we, and we, we sing a drinking song. And then there's the disaster at the end of the drinking song and everything. And, and in Tolkien's mind, all of this stuff. See, again... This is one of those things that's kind of... I think it's so important for us to try to put ourselves into Tolkien's frame of mind at this chronological moment, right? Because, of course, we are already thinking of all those things, right? It was hard when we first read it to remember that they were all hobbits because we associate that whole that whole plot chain with a, a primarily human uh, brie. But what, So what is fascinating to notice is that when Tolkien says, okay, they're not hobbits, they're humans, his first impulse is, well, that whole plot's out the window, Right? We're just chucking that stuff out the second story window with the dirty dishes, right? Because no way can we so 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 no drinking song, what? No trotter? I mean, what is to happen at Bree now? Can they still not meet Trotter? Right? Can the ring still not be revealed? Can we still not have learn more about the Black Riders? Can we still not get Gandalf's letter? I mean, you look back at the plot, it's like one of the plot elements can't be there, but it's clear by changing, in Tolkien's mind, by removing the hobbitry, right, by making it into a human's and therefore totally changing the tone. That seems to be associated in Tolkien's mind with making them not be hobbits. Then what are we going to do? And again, even more revealing is that second question. What kind of talk can give away Mr. Hill? I mean, okay, so if they're going to go to the common room, obviously they can't have the same kind of conversation that they would have had right, that they did have in the first version, because that was Hobbit talk, right? That was one Hobbit chatting with other Hobbits and getting really comfortable and telling stories and then singing songs on the table. That's how Hobbits carry on in pubs, in Hobbit pubs, right? But that's not how they're going to be talking to humans. So if they're, if, if they're, if it's just men in the room, where he's stuck. Where's he going to go? So he has that impulse, but doesn't know what to do with it. Um, and uh, so anyway, yeah, <laughs> several of you are uh, 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 teasing me here. You know, whoever heard of a human drinking? Well, it's different, though, right? It's different. The whole atmosphere is different. The point is not that they don't drink, but that their drinking is going to be different, and they're going to sing different drinking songs. And Bingo standing up and singing a drinking song on the table and falling off the table in the middle of it when he's trying to kick an imaginary troll in the seat of his imaginary pants won't fly in a human pub. It's just, it's not going to work. Ben Vetter says, Trotter would even have to be human. I know, Ben, right? That'd be horrible. So, man, it's just, what are we going to do? Because, of course, that's exactly where he goes next. Rangers are best not as hobbits, perhaps. Perhaps. Perhaps rangers would be better not as hobbits. And again, notice the wide world of hobbits completely gone, right? No more extended society of hobbits outside the Shire. The, uh, the, the hobbit culture has now shrunk back to just the Shire, right? But either Trotter, as a ranger, must be not a hobbit, or someone very well known, e.g. Bilbo. But the latter is awkward in view of happily ever after. I thought of making Trotter into Fosco Took, Bilbo's first cousin, who vanished when a lad, owing to Gandalf. Who is Trotter? He must have had some bitter acquaintance with ring rates, etc. Yeah, must have done. 
uh, given the whole PTSD thing that we saw from him at the inn. Um, uh, <laughs> Nancy Fosberg is saying, not to be ageist here, but how could Bilbo be a ranger? He's an extremely well-preserved uh, 11 okay? I mean, no problem. Um, uh, <laughs> Karina says, uh, but the latter is awkward in view of happily ever after is my new catchphrase. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That's, that's a good one, Karina. Um, uh, okay. We've discarded the wide world of hobbits almost without a blink, right? I mean, the, the whole concept of the wider hobbit society clean out the window, right? Um, the bigger issue is Trotter. A few things... Uh, Back when we were talking about the Trotter chapter, several of you in the questions kept pushing me and nudging me towards this passage, right? Um, you know, remember there are those references earlier on to like Bingo saying things like, "I feel like I know him," right? He seems from there's like this almost familial connection, right? And several of you who are reading ahead, i.e., reading on the actual schedule that I posted, were we're sort of being like, because, like, this shows that he's thinking that it's really Bilbo. No. I don't think so at all. Um, I don't think so at all. Yes, that was on the table. It was a possibility. He was, he was, he was considering that as an option. Um, but I really don't think that it, he definitely meant it to be Bilbo all along, that he had anything like made up his mind about that, and I say that because um, so I mean, you remember I kept resisting talking about that at the time because we didn't get anything about that, and I wanted to wait until we got to this moment. Um, this is the third time he has asked the question, "Who is Trotter?" He keeps asking that question of himself, and you know what? I'm beginning to think that he really means it. He doesn't know who Trotter is. Yes, Bilbo is a possibility. Right. Um, clearly, he wants to have a reunion with Bilbo. Right. You know, a a bingo Bilbo reunion is definitely in the cards pretty much from the beginning. Right. And so, yes, it does seem that one possibility that Tolkien is keeping alive in his mind is that this strange hobbit that he's met at the Inn in Bree is going to turn out to be Adventure Bilbo. Right. That's what Trotter the Ranger is. Um Bilbo went off to seek more adventures, and by golly, he found them, right? And one of those adventures seems to have landed him in wooden shoes, right? That's one possibility. Um, but, uh, but it's only one possibility, and he obviously had come nothing close to making up his mind about that, right? I thought of making Trotter into Fosco Took. So all that familial stuff and everything, all that he seemed kind of familiar, but I don't know where I'd seen him before... Uh, could just as easily, in fact, I would even argue more easily, be explained by the whole Fosco took possibility, right? Um, that Bingo might have some vague childhood memory of Fosco took before he ran off, right? Um, and so he kind of vaguely remembers him, thinks he looks vaguely tookish, right? And so he seems like maybe a relative, but um, but he doesn't really know him personally. It's hard for me to imagine that Bilbo would be so changed that. Bingo would meet him in the inn and be like, I mean, what, is Bilbo going to take off the wooden shoes and then Bingo be like, Bilbo, it's you! I, didn't, I would never have known you in the shoes, right? Um, 
but anyway, yeah. So I, I, it's it's you know, Trotter is yes, Brian definitely Trotter is um, um, is growing is growing and changing. And I frankly, I don't think that Bill. I I don't see much evidence that Bilbo was ever even a leading car- leading uh, contender for the identity of Trotter. Um, honestly, if uh, if he were, I would expect. The question that he keeps asking, who is Trotter, right? I would have expected him, if, if he was thinking, if the original plan was, okay, it's going to be Bilbo, right? And then he's reconsidering that or questioning that. I would have thought that at least one of those questions would have been some version of, should it be Bilbo or not, right? But it's never, it's just, who is Trotter? Who the heck is this guy, right? Bilbo, maybe? I don't know. Um, but... Um, but yeah, he really he he doesn't want to let go of happily ever after. He certainly doesn't want to give Bilbo PTSD inspiring adventures after he leaves Hobbiton, apparently, right? Um, so we're gonna we're gonna go uh, we're gonna go moving on. Um, <laughs> Nancy says that uh, shoes are the Hobbit the wooden shoes are the Hobbit equivalent of Superman's glasses when he when he when he, when he disguises himself as Clark Kent. Yeah, I suppose Nancy or like Arthurian armor, right? Like when you're reading Sir Thomas Mallory and all somebody has to do is like put on a different set of armor and you wouldn't know him, you know, uh, like you, you know you you could meet your your brother as so often happens and you wouldn't recognize him. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, so, okay, but there's another thing that I would point out here. That is, um, just back to the question: Who is Trotter? Right, and I think it implies a couple different things. One, I think the repetition emphasizes how much Tolkien doesn't know the answer to that question. Right, but secondly, the other way that I would read that re- th- that repeated question is Tolkien's insistence that Trotter be somebody. Do you see what I mean by that? That is, what I hear when Tolkien is asking the question, who is Trotter? Who is Trotter? Is not, I've met this strange character. This new character has emerged in my story, and I haven't figured out what his story is yet. I need to invent a backstory for Trotter, right? I need to to think about, I need to do some character discussion. Right? I need to do some character development of Trotter. That's not what I hear there. Right? What I hear there is not like, yeah, I, I need to work on Trotter, but rather Trotter is somebody. Right? He has an identity, a known identity. He has a connection to some other story, but I can't figure out which one. That seems to be... Do you see what I mean by that? It doesn't sound like he, he's, he's saying Trotter is a blank canvas that I need to fill in. Right. Rather, instead of seeing Trotter as a blank canvas, he seems to see Trotter as like a, a shadowed figure behind a screen, like a, a shadowed silhouette. Right. And he's trying to pull up the curtain to see who is that mysterious hobbit behind the curtain. It's definitely somebody. Right. It's not a new character. It's somebody. But I don't know which one it is. Do you see what I mean by that? Um, uh that seems to be part of his impulse, that he's going to turn out to be somebody, not just to be a new character coming in from from scratch, if you see what I mean. Um, but even at this point, we're still not anywhere nearer to it, other than his acknowledgement, whatever Trotter's story is and whoever he turns out to be, he does have some bitter acquaintance with the Ringwraiths, right? Um, 
And by the way, one of the things that I love so much about these kinds of passages is they seem to me so revealing about how Tolkien wrote and how Tolkien thought. And I just, I, nowhere do I feel closer to Tolkien's mind than reading these kinds of notes, right? Notice the implication, I think, of that last sentence, if I'm reading it correctly, what I think that the, its implications are. The PTSD thing. He didn't include that sense. So in the Trotter story, right? Remember, there's that moment where Trotter shudders and and, and has the PTSD reaction when he thinks about uh, the ring wraiths, right? Um, We might make the assumption, reading that, that Tolkien had a backstory in mind, right? If all we had was that passage, we'd be like, okay, so Trotter has a story, and it has something to do with the Black Riders. We just have to wait for Tolkien to reveal what the story is, right? This sentence shows that's not the case at all. That shuddering by Trotter, the appearance of the PTSD precedes the event that precipitated it, right? Tolkien has no idea what happened between Trotter and the Ringwraiths. No idea at all. He's just like, okay, notice he is like, he is doing a reading of his own text that he wrote. It's like he goes back and reads what he wrote and he's like, all right, I said that Trotter, apparently Trotter had a bad experience. I got to remember that whatever story I do come up with has to explain this thing, which he's treating as if it's a fact, right? Fact. Trotter apparently has some bitter acquaintance with the Ringwraiths, right? It reminds me of Niggle um, and the way that Niggle's relationship with this painting is described in Leaf by Niggle, right? How he's always finding things and discovering things. He's not inventing them, right? Um, he, uh, he, he doesn't make up birds and put them in. He finds that there are birds in nests on certain branches of the tree, right? Um, that's, uh, that's how it works. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> Who was that wooden shoot hobbit? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, okay, let's keep going. Um, <laughs> that's funny. Druid's fire on 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 uh, on Twitch says Tolkien was using the Bill and Ted method of time travel to influence the event. You know, it's almost like that. I, I, I that's a really fun parallel, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah, I like that. Um, okay. Uh, let's see. Where was I? Okay. Um, so let's move on. Issue number four. Gandalf's role and planning in the story. Notice this change that comes in as he's going back and thinking through this stuff from closer to the beginning. Gandalf is against Bingo's telling anyone where he is off to. Bingo is to take Mary. Bingo is reluctant to give pain to Odo and Frodo. He tells them, suddenly saying goodbye, and Frodo, Odo, meets what looks like a hobbit on the way uphill. He asks after Bingo, and Frodo, or Odo, tells him he is off to Buckleberry. Tells him Bingo, presumably, is off to Buckleberry. So Black Rider know, so Black Riders know and ride after Bingo. Of course, you'll recognize the role which eventually is going to be given to Gaffer Gamgee, right? Um, as Christopher points out. Um, but to me, what's m- even more interesting than that anticipation or rather that uh, the sort of the birth of that event, though it's always fun to see a scene that is familiar in the Lord of the Rings get born in a different context. But um, more 
important to me is the larger issue here. Notice how the story has changed. First, um, Bingo plans to take me... So we still have Bingo trying to keep it a secret, but we no longer have Bingo resolved to go alone, right? He's okay with Mary, right? So he seems to be resolved to take Mary from the beginning, but he's going to leave Odo and Frodo, right? Sorry, Odo and Frodo, I've got bad news, right? You're out. Okay, I'm leaving you behind. Um, so he tells them, um, he tells Odo and Frodo, goodbye, I'll never see you again. It's been nice. Have a good time. And right after that is when Frodo meets the Black Rider and tells him that Bingo is off to Buckleberry. So the impulse to be secret, right, is there, and it's immediately undermined, right? Um, it's... um. It's fascinating to me that uh, this impulse for solitude and secrecy backfires, right? The whole, I'm not going to take Odo and Frodo, probably, maybe, because I don't want to lead them into danger, immediately leads him into danger, right? If Odo and Frodo had gone off with him, they never would have told the Black Rider that Bingo was headed off to Buckleberry. Um, So the way that that instantly um, backfires is to me a fascinating element of this one little fragment. But of course, very importantly, um, Gandalf is a little bit more clued in, right? We have the implication that Gandalf already knows something. Um, Gandalf is against Bingo's telling anyone. Remember, Gandalf was a non-player. Gandalf was just at the party, right? He was, he was, he was a party guest. He helped with the party, did the fireworks, right? Took off with the dwarves and the elves afterwards, right? It left a message for... It was a completely casual... He knew that Bingo was leaving and they were going to catch up later on, but it was totally casual, right? Now, we're, re- we're reimagining this, but we're reimagining this with Gandalf with some degree of clue, right? And so he is trying to urge Bingo, apparently, to be more secret than Bingo otherwise would. Um, and Ben, yes, that's, of course, the other thing that we can't skip... The Black Rider looks like a hobbit? Seriously? I don't know what that's supposed to mean. You know, Ben is asking, is it a shapeshifter? Right? Ah, is it a magical disguise? No idea. Um, no idea what um, uh, what this means exactly. The Black Rider was described as being small like a bundle on the, on, on, on the horse, remember? Um, when he first came in, the first, very first appearance of the first Black Rider. Um, but I can't understand how he would look like a hobbit exactly. I Really, I have no idea where he's going with that right there and what that implies. Um, some reason for Gandalf's uneasiness in Flight of Bingo, in the Flight of Bingo, which does not include the Black Riders, must be found. Okay, so here, notice... He seems to want to, as we saw already in the previous passage, he seems to want to have more urgency. It's not no longer just a casual jaunt from the beginning, right? When Bingo is leaving the Shire, there needs to be secrecy. Remember, that was part of the issue that we had at the beginning. You know, once at once the Black Riders came, now we have reasons to hide, right? And to you know change your names at Bree and all that kind of thing, right? But originally it was like, uh, who cares, right? I left... I'm out wandering and seeking my adventure. 
why should I keep secret? Why should I hide from folks on the road? Why should I care, right? Um, and so he sees, okay, that's... Yes, okay, but how can we get him to the Black Riders without making him just be careless, right? So Gandalf has to be uneasy for some reason, and um, there has to be some reason both for Gandalf's uneasiness and for the flight of Bingo. Flight, not just departure, but flight, right? Which doesn't include the Black Riders. He hasn't figured it out yet, but he's got to come up with something. Gandalf knew of their existence, of course, right? He knows about the Black Riders, that they exist, but had no idea that they were out yet. But Gandalf might give some kind of... I'm sorry, but I had no idea they were out yet. That that phrase, that phrasing, but I had no idea they were out yet, makes me imagine the Black Riders as either being like pet animals, right? Like dogs, right? You know, who let the ring rates out, as a joke we've made before. Or, or worse, remember I just reread the entire works of Jane Austen, so I had no idea they were out yet. Makes me think of them being out in the Jane Austenian sense, um, which is even funnier, right? So the the Black Riders now uh, can go and appear at balls, right? Apparently they couldn't before uh, because they're uh, waiting for their older sisters to get married. But anyway... Um, Never mind. But Gandalf might give some kind of warning against use of the ring after he leaves Shire. Perhaps the idea of suddenly using ring at party as a final joke should be a bingoism, and contrary to Gandalf, not approved, as in my foreword. Um, <clears throat> notice again, this is another problem, right? Um, what Tolkien seems to me to be wrestling with in this paragraph is how can I make the ends meet, right? Um, before meeting the Black Riders, Bingo is a happy-go-lucky adventurer, right? Who has a magic ring and is not afraid to use it. Why should he be, right? That's what happens, in fact, when the Black Rider comes past the first time, right? Um, so we need to have him not just casually strolling down the road. He has to be fleeing, right? And he has to... Um, be warned against the use of the ring, because it's now important that he not use the ring, but how is he going to know not to use the ring, right? So if Gandalf is just going to waltz off, so now we have, maybe Gandalf doesn't just waltz off with the elves and dwarves, right? Maybe he leaves some kind of warning. Although apparently, it's going to be a, it's going to be a, um, uh, uh, it's, it's going to be a cryptic message, I guess, Right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Why was Gandalf hurrying? Because that is, and I think Tolkien is asking you the question that we've been asking the last couple of weeks, right? Like, why doesn't Gandalf wait? Why is he like, sorry, can't tarry it, Bree? Push along, though, right? And he gets to Rivendell, to, to Weathertop, right? Been here for a while, left you some cram, but do push along, right? Can't wait longer. Why can't he wait longer? Especially if he knows by then, because he's talked to Trotter and Bree, that there are Black Riders about, right? If they weren't out before, they're out now, right? So, come on. Because Dark Lord knew of him and hated him. Ah, okay. Um, Gandalf is hurrying because... Sauron is going to pursue him personally. Okay. He had to get quick to Rivendell and thought he was drawing pursuit off Bingo. Okay. Now we're beginning to construct a rationale for Gandalf that begins to make sense, right? Um, And prevents Gandalf from looking quite as clueless, clueless as he looked the first time through, right? 
Also, he knew there was a council called at Rivendell for mid-September, Glowin, etc., coming to see Bilbo. It was postponed when the news of the Black Riders reached Rivendell and was not held till Bingo arrived. Uh, that's a little bit of a step back for me. Also, there was a council called at Rivendell for mid-September. Sorry, Bingo. Love to help you with the Black Riders, but I'm late. There's a council, and I've, really, I, 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 I've just got to be there. I'm sorry. Uh, so, uh, see ya. Right, that doesn't work out so well for me either. But anyway, we, we have the... We have the idea of that you know that the council is there and there's uh, some kind of urgency attached to that, but but clearly the drawing off pursuit and the idea that Gandalf doesn't stick around to wait for Bingo because he's got a target on his back, right? Because the Dark Lord knows and hates him. Um, so okay, all right, um, and yes, Joyce, you're absolutely right that. The uh, Dark Lord v. Gandalf subplot gives us a tie back to the Hobbit and the White Council, absolutely. Um, and uh, so does the connection with Glowen, right, that we get here. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, <laughs> Josiah says the White Council does place a high priority on punctuality, as everybody knows that, right? Everybody knows that. Um, yeah, it's the number one reason I was kicked off the White Council. But anyhow, um, let's... Um, so, so I lo- I like the impulse that, you know, he he he's beginning to come up with explanations why Gandalf can't wait for Bingo, right? It's just it's not possible. But notice he's still not taking the final step, right? The final step that we know he's eventually gonna take of actually incarcerating Gandalf, right? Let's have Gandalf held captive by somebody so that he is physically prevented from coming to Bil- to to Bingo's rescue. Um, so it seems that eventually. Tolkien's going to be dissatisfied even with this, and she's going to need an even better answer for what could possibly keep Gandalf from coming to the rescue uh, at this point. All right. Um, let's uh, keep going. Issue number five. We've done four out of seven, and we still have 15 minutes. No problem. <clears throat> the ring, right? Uh Bingo must not put on his ring when black riders go by, in view of later developments. He must think of doing so, but somehow be prevented. Each time the temptation must grow stronger. Okay, a really important element of the ring now emerges clearly, right? That that the carrier of the ring is tempted and increasingly tempted over time to put it on, right? Obviously Bingo came... Remember in that first scene Bingo was sitting there right on a stump by the side of the road wearing the ring, watching the Black Rider go by, right? That can't happen anymore because now we know that is by the time we get to to, to Weathertop and then to the Ford um, now it has emerged that when you are wearing the ring the Black Riders can see you and you can see them, right? So obviously that's not even going to function properly in the way that Tolkien conceived it back at the beginning. So that's got to change. But the most important thing here is the nature of the ring and the, and the idea, is this the first time that temptation has been associated with the ring? I kind of think it is. I mean, it was going to be bad news in a couple other different kinds of ways, but I think this is the first time we've had this kind of temptation. It's still not to, like, claim the ring, but the idea of uh, of putting it on, and yes, the ring bearer being in danger from the ring itself, Tim, it's a, it's a huge deal, right? This is, this is a major moment. Um, one of the most important things we see going backwards. Oops, speaking of going backwards. Okay. Um... Bingo's ring proved to be the one missing ring... All others had come back to Mordor, but this one had been lost. Okay, so remember there, 
Remember when he was working out the ring stuff earlier on, he had already, uh, Tolkien had already suggested that Bingo's ring could be unique because it's like Sauron's favorite ring, or it could be the only one, he was doing a recall on all the rest of the rings, and it's the only one that hasn't turned up yet, right? This is the, this is the thing that he's still suggesting here, right? Sauron knows the whereabouts of all the other rings except this one, right? So that's what makes it special. Um, okay, right? Maybe. Still not satisfying quite yet, but uh, uh, but that still seems to be the idea. Um, but now the first, the other, the, the next new idea emerges. Make it taken from the Lord himself when Gilgalad wrestled with him, and taken by a flying elf. No, that doesn't mean an elf with wings. But let this be a lesson to you. When Tolkien uses the word flying, it almost never has anything to do with wings. Um, I would love to see a study, somebody go through and show me where Tolkien uses the words fly or flying in a sentence, or flew, and count the number of times that it actually refers to somebody being airborne, right? Very, very rarely. The word fly in Tolkien almost always means run away really fast, retreat really fast. Um, That's... uh, um, that's what happens. Fly, you fools. Exactly, Nick. That's the, that's the, the standard thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. It, uh, it, I mean, it, but it is hard not to picture. I totally agree. It's hard not to picture a winged elf, right? Taken by a flying elf, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Brandon, Brandon Minnick saying, flying elves seem pretty cool, though. I mean, I, I know. I, I hear you. I hear you. Um, it was more powerful than all the other rings. Why did the Dark Lord desire it so? So, okay. Another major connection is made. Notice how he's continuing to develop the Gilgalad story, right? We're, we're, again, we haven't just brought in the stories. Now the stories themselves are being developed. The story of Gilgalad is growing and growing and growing, right? Now it's going to be Gilgalad who takes the ring away from Sauron, right? So this is how Sauron came to lose it. It was taken from him. New idea here. Right, and then we get what might seem to us like a flabbergasting question at the end: Why did the Dark Lord desire it so? What's so special about this ring? And this is a a wonderful reminder: It's not special yet, or not that special yet. It's a little bit special, but not that special yet. Right? It's special because it's the only one missing. There was even a, that one possibility earlier on that it was like a, a, a ring that he particularly liked for some reason, you know, that it was a, that it was a, his particular ring, but we, we didn't really still know very much about it, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but he answers his question almost immediately. Subsequently, my father penciled rapid additions to the note. He marked the words, all others had come back to Mordor for rejection, and to the words, it was more powerful than all the other rings, he added, though its power depended on the user and its danger, the simpler the user, the less he used it. To Gollum, it just helped him to hunt, but made him wretched. To Bilbo, it was useful, but drove him wandering again. To Bingo, as Bilbo. Gandalf could have trebled his power, but he dare not use it, not after he found out all about it. An elf would have grown nearly as mighty as the Lord, but would have become dark. So much we can comment on here. Of course, one small thing that I can't help but notice. Notice the spectrum? 
I mean, or like the power hierarchy. Suggestion number one, Gollum is lesser than Bilbo, right? Gollum and Bilbo don't start off equal. Um, to Gollum, it just helped him to hunt. To Bilbo, it was useful, but drove him wandering again. It didn't make him wretched like it did to Gollum, right? This suggests that Gollum was lesser than Bilbo, right? Bilbo and Bingo are on a par, right? Gandalf is above them. If Gandalf had added, it would have trebled his power. He already had a bunch of power, right, which Bilbo and Bingo don't have, and so the power that Gandalf had would have been trebled. An elf would have grown nearly as mighty as the Lord, suggesting elves are above Gandalf, as Gandalf is above Bilbo and Bingo, right? That's interesting, and what would not have been to me a given, right? Fascinating to see that he, if we're understanding him, if I'm understanding him properly, he seems to think that way. Um, so yeah, exact. Several of you were just uh, uh, commenting on that same thing. Kate and uh, uh, Kate Neville and Ben Vetter were exclaiming about the same thing. Yes, um, Kate, I agree. It looks like Gandalf isn't a Loren yet. No, no, he's not. Um, and right, Ben was noticing the same thing. Elves definitely more powerful than Gandalf. Um, Yes, remember, Gandalf in The Hobbit is a little old man. He's a wizard, and there are bunches of other wizards, right? There's, they have, like, a guild, right? You know, the White Council, which is the meeting of, of, of the good wizards. Um, so, yeah, so they have a, they have a you know, a, um, like a guild. You know, they have, a, they, have a, they have an arrangement, but um, they're not... It seems to be more of a profession, than something about his being... Anyway, that still seems to be in force. As it seemed to be in The Hobbit, so it appears to be still now. But of course, more importantly, we can see this really important idea of the nature of the ring. How the ring has different power based upon this, the, the stature of the, of the bearer. Right? Um, and so this idea of the ring and it's the different way it interacts with different wielders the complexity of the concept of the ring and its power is really beginning to grow and beginning to fill in uh, and become familiar, as we will know it to be later on. Um, this set of notes, Tolkien leaps closer to the final concept of the, of the ring than we've ever seen anywhere, right? It's really coming together now. And then my favorite one. At this time, he also underlined the words, why did the Dark Lord desire it so, put an exclamation park, point, mark against them, and wrote... Because if he had it, he could see where all the others were, and he would be master of their masters. He could see where all the other rings were, of course. And he would be master of their masters, control all the dwarf hordes and the dragons, and know the secrets of the elf kings and the secret plans of evil men. Cool. Right. Now it's the ruling ring. It's finally the ruling ring. Clearly, definitively, and forever the ruling ring. And notice what this suggests about... Sauron's plans, right? This makes sense. All of a sudden, with the concept of the ruling ring, now, you know, before, when Sauron was, like, distributing rings, right, before, it was... It was a trap, right? It is definitely a trap. Uh, It was a trap, right, because he was making them into wraiths, which then became his slaves, and that was cool, right? So he got a pretty good return on the rings by making folks into wraiths. Elf wraiths and human wraiths. Remember, the whole bunch of the dwarf wraiths didn't pan out, but anyway, um, it was... uh, was But now we can see what the plan was. Bigger plan, right? With the ruling ring, now immediately this bigger plan comes into focus, right? This is his strategy of getting control over everything. He would have control over all the dwarves and over their hordes, if it had worked out, right? Um, Because the dwarf hordes are useful, 
right? Um, over the dragons. I don't know quite how that works. Maybe through the dwarf hordes? I'm not sure. But but if, if through his ring plan, he could get control over the dwarf hordes and the dragons, learn the secrets of all the elf kings and the secret plans of evil men, right? He doesn't just make them into slaves. He learns the secrets of their realms, right? And remember, there's no reason to think that the evil men who were the ringwraiths are particularly ancient, right? You know, we think of that, but remember, we don't have the timeline worked out yet. Um, so the evil men, the evil, uh, the you know, yeah, the evil men who become the ringwraiths, who become the Black Riders, um, don't have to have been dead for that long, or not dead, or whatever they are. They don't have to be. They don't have to have been undead for that long. Um, you know, they could be comparatively co- contemporaneous folks, right? Okay, cool. But we've got the ruling ring, and that's uh, and that's what's uh, what's most important. Yeah, Josiah, I don't know about the dragons. I really... Stephen is saying the ones that ate the rings, maybe. Uh, Stephen, that was my first thought, too, and I love the idea, right? Ah, uh, you consumed the ring, but now it is in your... <laughs> from within your stomach, I can control you. Um, I love it. Love it. Uh, I doubt it, but... Um, um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm really, I, I mean, I'd just be wildly guessing how this was going to lead to his control over the dragons at this point. Um, uh, Marielle is wondering if the ring could make someone a dragon. Well, hordes can do that, right? Uh, hordes of treasure are famous for turning folks into dragons. It happens all the time. So um, uh, maybe, you know, that, uh, was that going to be the plan? Give the rings to the dwarves. The dwarves use the ring to gather gold, right? And they make a huge horde. And then naturally, that's going to attract dragons. And the dragons, but if he controls the dwarf hordes, he can control the dragons. Or better, Mario, as you suggest, he puts this big horde, and then the horde itself is a trap, right? And then somebody will come along, and that person will turn into a dragon like Fafnir or like Eustace. Um, and talk about two unequal things. Um, and then now, boom, he's got a dragon, right? It all. It all works out. Um, yeah, so, okay. Um, one more question. What about those elf wraiths? He said there were elf wraiths, right? Should the elves have necromancer rings? See note about their being in both worlds. But perhaps only the high elves of the West? Also, perhaps elves, if corrupted, would use rings differently. Normally, they were visible in both worlds all the time. And equally, with a ring, they could appear only in one if they chose. Okay, a couple things. First of all, notice that his interest here is primarily sort of metaphysical, right? Philosophical. It's not really plot-wise. He's not asking... He doesn't seem to be primarily interested in, like, the backstory of elves with rings. What he seems primarily interested in this paragraph is, metaphysically, what happens to an elf with rings, right? Right? Because he's just said that thing about elves being at once in both worlds, right? Um, so, if a hobbit puts on... There's like this the physical world and there's this spirit wraith world, right? And a hobbit lives in the physical world but not in the wraith world. When a hobbit puts on the ring, he becomes invisible in the physical world because he's shifted over into the wraith world. And that's why he can see the wraiths, right? That's why Bingo can see the wraiths wearing the ring. Okay, no problem. And that's why he can see it when he's wounded, right? Even without wearing the ring because he's already mostly... He's like being drawn from the physical world into the wraith world. Fine. Okay, cool. 
But what about elves? So if elves exist at once in both the physical world and the wraith world, which you did say in that previous chapter in Rivendell in the conversation with Gandalf about the Ford and Gorfindel, then what happens to them when they put on their necromancer rings? They can't go into the wraith world because they're already there. So he, so he has this idea, right? Maybe normally they're visible in both worlds at a time, and with a ring, they can disip- They can make themselves invisible in one of the two worlds. They can they can like only appear in one, right? So it enables them to hide. It's like elvish invisibility, right? So an, an elf puts on the ring, and he doesn't vanish. And you'd say to the elf, "Why didn't you become invisible?" And he's like, "I did become invisible." Raves, right? I'm invisible in the elf in, in in the wraith world right now. You can still see me just fine, but like to raids, I'm totally invisible right now. I guess that's the idea, right? That he's kind of thinking it through. Um, so this seems to be, again seems to me mostly a metaphysical issue that Tolkien is solving. Again, I would draw attention to why he's solving that problem in the first place. Um, I love that sentence. See note about their being in both worlds. Once again, he goes back to the text that he himself just wrote and does a close reading of it, right? If you if I look carefully at the thing I just wrote, I notice that it says that elves are in both worlds. But if that's true, then what else must also be true, right? Is, doesn't that seem like a really funny, a really interesting place for him to be as a writer, right? I mean, he's not asking the question, do I want to do that, right? Instead, he's saying, well, that's what happened, right? So how can I make it work? This is the second time. The first time was Trotter's PTSD, right? Where, like, that thing happened, and he's writing the story, and this thing comes out, and he looks at it, and he's like, huh, all right. All right, let's fit that sucker in, <laughs> right? We've got we've got to remember to make that fit somehow. Um, it's uh, it's it's not it's not. Um, he talks even in his own private notes, like he's not making this up, right? Like he's like this is just this story is unfolding before him as he goes, and it's his job not to shape it, but to learn its implications, right? That's the way he talks. Again, not just in his letters. He talks like that in his letters. Um, not, but he talks like that even in his own notes to himself. And that is what is, to me, so absolutely fascinating. Okay, issue number six. Uh, the one passage in which he is talking about the continuation of the story. Um, and I think I'm going to end after this one here tonight. Um, I won't get to issue seven, which is his starting again, but that's okay. That's what we're going to do next time. So next time, we'll do the starting again. Let's end with this one. Um, because I do, this is the one place where I think we're getting about what's going to happen in the rest of this book. At Rivendell, Bilbo must be seen by Bingo, etc. Sleeping. In retirement? Shadows gathering in the south. Lord of Dale is suspected of being secretly corrupted. Strange men are seen in Dale? What happened to Balin, Ori, and Owen? They went out to colonize, being told of rich hills in the south, but after a time no word was heard of them. Dan feared the Dark Lord. Rumor of his movements reached him. One idea was that dwarves need a ring as a foundation for their horde, and either Balin or... Sorry, that's a typo. Either Balin or Dan sent to Bilbo to discover what had become of it. I love that. Hey, Bilbo, we need uh, uh, to build a new horde. Can we borrow your ring? Right? We need to borrow your ring for for horde-building purposes, but we'll totally return it afterwards. Right? Um, Anyway, sorry. 
uh, sent to Bilbo to discover what had become of it. The dwarves might have received threatening messages from Mordor, for the Lord suspected that the One Ring was in their hordes. Okay. So much here, right? Um, the possibility exists that Sauron thinks that Erebor became Erebor, right? The Lonely Mountain became the kingdom. The Horde of Thror is based on the One Ring, right? So he's looking up at Erebor, and he's all like, hey, you guys have a ring of power up there? Because if so, it's probably my ring, and I want it back, right? That's, that's... uh, So he was always looking... You know, in the Fellowship of the Ring, he's looking suspiciously up there because he's captured Gollum and he's heard about Bilbo and one of these hobbits was known to you on a time, right? Now he's just looking at their horde and he's like, there must be a ring involved, right? Okay. Um, Another point, smallish point. They went out to colonize, being told of rich hills in the south. Khazad-dum doesn't exist yet. There is no Khazad-dum. Now, I hear you preparing to ask, wait a second, but the Mines of Moria are in The Hobbit. Right? In The Hobbit! In Chapter 1, there's the reference to the Mines of Moria. Like, remember, Thorin says, but we already settled the dwarves, or the, the, the goblins of Moria, you know, for, for the in The Mines of Moria. The Like, the Battle of Azanulbazar has already been alluded to in Chapter 1 of The Hobbit. So, how can I possibly say there's no Chazadum? There's obviously no Chazadum. It's the Mines of Moria. Um, remember in the movie, right, where Gimli goes on about, like, and they call it a mine! A mine! Right? You remember that line? Right? Um, I think that's hilarious. Right? That line, I always find that line really ironic, because I'm thinking of chapter one of The Hobbit and The Return of the Shadow. Right? Um, the dwarves to the dwarves themselves, Khazadum, it was originally just a mine, right? There's no reason to think that the mines of Moria referred to in uh, chapter one of The Hobbit have a long tragic history with the dwarves, that it was originally the homeland of the dwarves. N- it was it was a mine. It's called a mine, right? So apparently there was this mine called the Mines of Moria, and there was a fight with goblins that happened over ownership of the mine or something? We have no idea. We're not told any of the backstory there, right? Um, But again, we fill that in ourselves, right? Arthur, exactly. Tolkien does retcon later on, and Tolkien's retcon is so convincing. It's so good that we do it ourselves without thinking. I mean, not only that, like, we can't separate ourselves from his retcon, right? So we read that... So. He create without changing a word of chapter one of the Hobbit, right? He convinces us that the entire kingdom of the Dwarodelf is like foreshadowed there, alluded to and foreshadowed in chapter one of the Hobbit. It's totally not. But in Tolkien Retcon world, it, it is, right? And it's just it's amazing. I Tolkien is the king of Retcon. It's fantastic. But um But it's not it's not there originally, right? So um we're not going back to the mines of Moria. There are just these rich hills. It's a colony. They're going out to a new place. They're not returning to the homeland. The Lonely Mountain is their homeland. We did the return to the homeland story in The Hobbit already, right? So no, 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 no. They're not going to their homeland. They're going out from their homeland to establish a new colony because they heard there are rich hills in the south. They want to they start up a new horde, right? Um, 
So so they're going to, and maybe they need a ring, right? I love the business about borrowing the ring, right? So they're going to go down to the south and they're going to, and by the way, when we say they're going to the south, where are we going? Remember, Hobbit map, still Hobbit map, right? So the, the south means probably in those, remember those white spaces to the, to the right uh, and, uh, and, and down from the Long Lake and the, and the river running in the Hobbit map? Um, there's not much over there. Right, but so down in the south, south of the Long Lake, down the Running River to the east, and south of the Running River, down in that area somewhere, probably I don't know, but it sounds like that. Um, again, south means Hobbit map, as we saw from last time. Um, big picture, though, do you see the implications of this? The implications of this are the rest of the plot, as far as he can foresee it right now. The rest of the, this sounds to me like a, pro, a plot projection, right? What's going to happen? The first part of the story, like the first half of the story, was getting to Rivendell, right? Okay, whew, we've gotten to Rivendell. Now what? Well, the second half of the story, it sounds like, is going to be Erebor centered, just like The Hobbit. We're still on The Hobbit map, we're still following The Hobbit route, right? Um, notice that, like, the story is emerging. The Lord of Dale is suspected of being secretly corrupted. Strange men are seen in Dale, right? So what's happening in Dale? That's gonna, that's the mystery, right? Clearly that's gonna have something to do with where we're going, right? Shadow is gathering in the south, because Mordor, you know, is like a big, huge part of that map. Remember, Mirkwood, subset of Mordor, right? So Mordor's over there. The influence of Mordor is creeping north, Right, not only into the forest, but 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 now to, towards Dale and Erebor itself, are we going to have like a let's go rescue the Lonely Mountain kind of quest? And uh, Brian, exactly, it's still basically a sequel. He is still all the stuff has emerged, right? The nature of the Ring and the ruling Ring and all that stuff, but this is still a sequel to The Hobbit. He's going over the same terrain. Let's go back and save the Lonely Mountain again, not from a dragon this time, but from the Dark Lord himself. Is there still going to be a quest for a fiery mountain or a, a, a fiery hill? Maybe so, but if so, I bet it's going to be somewhere over there. It's somewhere in the general Erebor region, right? Um, they're going to be going off into the direction of, um, of, of the Lonely Mountain. That seems clear. And notice what this suggests, right? This suggests that the conversation with Glowen, it's not a side note, right? That's how it is in the published... Fellowship of the Ring, right? Many meetings, right? And we're like, hey, oh, cool. A little uh, historical color, right? Oh, yeah, fun to hear about what's happening in the Lonely Mountain, right? Oh, yeah, because, you know, we've read The Hobbit and we're kind of invested in that and that all kind of sounds fun, right? Um, No, that conversation with Glowen was the pivotal thing, right? He was going to hear, it was from Glowen. This is why Glowen is in Rivendell in the first place. Right, Glowen is there because somebody has to bring the news. Like, there's crisis around the Lonely Mountain. We've got to go rescue. Let's go. Let's head out and f- go back to the mountain. So we're still going there. We might not come back again, but we're still going there to the same there that Bilbo went to. Um, and that is absolutely fascinating to me. Um, the idea that the Lord of the Rings was headed to the Lonely Mountain again. That seems clear. That kind of blows my mind, right? Now, 
this is uh, this. Is, so I would say actually this. I had said that the conversation with uh, with Glowin was the high water mark, right? Uh, as far as the tide went to this time around, um, really, I would say this is it, right? This this glimpse, this set of notes where he's talking about clearly working through ideas about what's going to happen next, right? Where the story is headed. This is the where now the tide is going to turn and he's going to turn back and figure out the beginning again and he's going to go back and rewrite the thing, right? Um, and that's where we will take it up next time. So next, there are the two more note, uh, you know, queries and alterations from this chapter, uh, the, the, the last two, about the, how he's going to rework the opening. We'll start with those next time and then we'll go into the second phase text. Um, it is my ambition... Rash, though it may sound, it is my ambition to do the next two chapters, chapter 14 and chapter 15, uh, in the next class. I make no promises about this, but that's my goal. Um, So that's what we will attempt to do uh, next time. Um, So we'll see. We'll see. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. This was a really fun class. I love this chapter and doing things like this. Uh, I am just... I hope you're having... I hope you're having half as much fun as I am looking at the uh, History of the Lord of the Rings books because uh, this has just been one of the most fun uh, Mythgard Academy um, uh, seminars we've done yet. So I'm, uh, I've been really happy with this. Thanks for joining me. And I look forward to seeing you guys again next week, uh, as we go back to the beginning and start over again at the long expected party as, and not, uh, as, as, uh, to, to quote the Hobbit, not for the last time, right? <laughs> Thanks everybody. Um, I will see you guys next week. Bye now. And thank you, everybody on Twitch. Uh, I uh, have was uh, uh, I've been following the um, the Twitch channel. I see that uh, 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 a bunch of people were joining us here tonight. Uh, glad you could join us here, and I hope you will stick around. And uh, we'll see you around on Twitch other times. Thanks, everybody. Bye now. <laughs>